All right, Forge family. This is um, this would have been episode number six, uh, number seventeen. Excuse me, sixteen was two weeks ago, and uh, we decided to preach this one live, as opposed to um, you receiving it uh, as a podcast. But it will be recorded and available in that format. So, just a quick review of where we were two weeks ago, and that was episode sixteen, where where the apostle Peter was sending encouragement and directions to elders. And these were the leaders who were in the house churches that were scattered up that road from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. But they, some of them were just one house. But they were deemed as an elder in that house because those who'd passed through before saw the maturity in that man or that woman and said, that's an elder. Because they matched those qualifications. If you recall, I, I had drawn 14 qualifications out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and all these men, Peter included, had to match those qualifications. And so when Peter addresses these elders, he says, I come to you as a fellow elder, because we match the same qualifications. There's no hierarchy here. There's just you know, elders. Ten, you know, when you're an elder, it levels the, levels the playing field. Okay? And he was an eyewitness who had been called to give personal testimony, a witness of the suffering of Jesus, and thirdly, he said, I'm going to be with you when we are part of that glory when Jesus returns. And in the urging of those elders to, to care for and tend and feed and doctor and, and come around and teach the, the flocks, if you will, the gatherings of people that each of them had been assigned, whether it was an elder who was over a citywide network of house churches or whether it was in a little village and that man had one household that he cared for. It didn't matter. Okay. Peter says to them, I don't want you to do that under compulsion. There's no arm up behind your back. You're not being twisted into this. No one's forcing you. But if you feel that way, get out of there. You know, do this business of eldering and caring for people without compulsion, but rather voluntarily. Yeah, with joy. And second, he says, don't do it for the money. <laughs> yeah, don't do it for the, the position or the power or the, the platform, all the other things that the Gentiles kind of went, wow, that's, you know, look at that. Look what he's got. Peter says, don't touch that. Rather, do it with eagerness. And thirdly, not as a Gentile who lords it over the other believers. And Peter's actually quoting the, the, the comment by Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, don't do it like, those, like the Gentiles do. You know, uh, the one who's going to be first in this household is the one who serves. You know, for years I pastored in Pacifica and in a little niche in my, in my bookcase, out of sight to everybody else. But from my desk I could see it. It was a little saying that said, um, a servant is someone who becomes excited about making someone else successful. And in many ways, Peter is doing that here. He's excited about making those other elders successful. <clears throat> um, now, there's no such thing as a perfect pastor in this house or any other house where the church meets, okay? Peter was described in uh, the ancient church, if you will. Uh, two millennia have passed. He was called the prince of apostles. He was called the prince of preachers. He, you, know, he was, you know, he was held up in high regard by the church that rose up in the, from the rubble of the, of the uh, Roman Empire. But here, he doesn't lord it over those elders. He comes at them straight ahead, eyeball to eyeball. And he says to these people, don't lord it over each other, but instead you be becoming an example. 
and it's a, it's a present tense thing. Uh, everybody who's in leadership is becoming something different. And if you're not, if you're just stuck, then you're in the wrong place, okay? Remember I used, talked about being an example and a template and a cutting die or you know, a piece of software in a, in a computer-generated system. So what is produced is exactly like the one before it. Peter, what Peter wants is when elders minister, he wants Jesus to be reproduced. And then lastly, Peter turns to the young men and the young women. We've got a bunch of you guys sitting on that row right there. Okay, and obviously, young men and young women can see the feet of clay of senior leaders. Every church has senior leaders. Every church has young people, pretty much. And it's the young people who kind of go, oh, man, did you hear that? Did you see the look on his face? You know, and I remember being in a church with a mentor that we were kind of in awe of. And, but there was a younger man who was preaching behind him in the pulpit order. And, and our, our mentor was traveling the world. He was in high demand, but he had daughters at home and he had, you know, white family. But, you know, life was, was stretched. He was not a young man. He was in his 60s. And uh, the young preacher coming up behind him made this sort of smart comment about, have you seen his garage? And it was a tragic thing. I mean, his garage was a disaster. I mean, you could find nothing. There was no order to it. Stuff had just been Amen. loaded in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but, you know, what Peter is saying here to these young people is, you know, obviously you can see flaws because they're there. Instead of that, be subject. Rank yourself under those senior leaders, under your elders, and, and then that picture of tying on humility, of literally, you know, that the, the slaves had to tie on a different color, you know, that you could identify in the marketplace. You could say, that's a freed man, that's a slave. Peter says, you put it on the outside, you put it on the inside. You, you place yourself in a, in, a, in a humble position under senior leadership. Okay, let's pray together because we're going to start on new material. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're doing as we conclude 1 Peter here. Lord, uh, we know that these podcasts go out abroad and, and you're able to work through Holy Spirit with power there too. Or... Holy Spirit did not lord it over the other leaders. Lord, uh, thank you for that model. Help us to guard our hearts in this culture that is a culture of criticism and snark. Lord, sometimes we defame those who lead. Help us, Jesus, to just bow to you, to defer to you, to submit to you, Lord. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. All right, let's read um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. I neglected to get that up on the screen today. I apologize, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, and after you've suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called to you, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So at verse 6, 
Peter begins this section with the same theme. He called young men, young women, if you will, younger portions of younger leaders, younger people in the congregation to humility. And he turns to the whole group of people in these churches and he says, let yourself be humbled. That's a passive voice, which means it's something you don't do to yourself. It's done to you. And so you submit yourself, he says here, to the mighty hand of God. Just in recognition, suffering is on its way. He's already warned the people, it's coming. The cult of Caesar is coming, and there's going to be suffering and perhaps death. Um, and and there will be trouble spread abroad through the house churches in Asia Minor. But Peter just comes back and says, humble yourself now. Don't wait for suffering to do that to you. Make a choice to say, I'm going to humble myself under that mighty hand of God. Now, that phrase, the mighty hand of God, appears really openly in the Old Testament. The mighty hand of God was what delivered Israel out of Egypt. Remember when we did an introduction to the Jacob story, Abraham received a prophetic word from God that said, and your descendants will descend down to Egypt and they'll be there as servants and slaves for 400 years. And then they'll be released and they'll return to this land. They were such an effective workforce that Egypt wasn't going to let them go, turned them into slaves. You know, we, we haven't done the Joseph series, but we're going to get there eventually, okay? So the, the Jake, Jacob and his wives and 12 sons and a daughter over the course of about 400, five, you know, nearly 500 years in, in the making here, turned themselves into two and a half million. They were fecund. They were fertile people. They had family. And they grew to be a mighty nation just even when they were servants in Egypt. And then God protects the seed. He protects the seed that, that uh, is being carried inside that family. And especially uh, you know, amongst the, the, uh, one of the sons, and uh, <clears throat> he protects the, the Redeemer. Moses is born to Jochebed, and the edict from Pharaoh was, kill those Hebrew boy babies because they're getting away from us. There's too many of them. We can't control them. And so the midwives were supposed to birth the baby and kill it. Sound familiar? Okay. And Jochebed gave birth on her own to Moses and tried to hide him tried to keep him undercover. While little ones, when they're nurturing, you know, when they're just nursing and they're little and they sleep a lot, not a problem. But when they're six months old, eight months old, they're on the move. Okay? They make noise. And finally she has to send her daughter to the river, make a little tarred surfaced reed boat, put her son in the boat, cover him and put him on the water of the Nile in the expectation that God is going to care for that boy. You know the story. The handmaid of the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, sees this thing floating in the reeds, goes and gets it, delivers it to the, to the daughter of Pharaoh. They pop the lid off it, and she knew instantly that's one of the Hebrew children and takes that child as her own. And so for 40 years in the household of Pharaoh, Moses is equipped with all the wisdom and knowledge of this ancient culture. He knew how to make war the way Egypt did. He knew how to build things like Egypt did. And he was also made completely aware of how deviant and how broad and oppressive the false worship was in Egypt. Forty years later, he tries to take into his own hands the deliverance of the people. And he sees an Israelite being beaten, and he steps in and kills the Egyptian overseer. And has to flee. Ultimately, he has to flee the house of Pharaoh, and for the next 40 years, he walks ahead of a bunch of sheep for 40 years. 
He goes from the pinnacle of civilization to the bottom rung in the howling wilderness of the Sinai. And then God comes and says, speaks to him out of the burning bush, says, you're the man. And Moses goes, uh-uh, I, I don't talk good. <laughs> I have a speech impediment. I have something that blocks me from communicating. That hadn't appeared previously in the house of Pharaoh, but it was there then. And God persuades him to lead the people. And in the process, God brings Moses back with the mighty hand of God to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you don't, this will take place ten times. And over the ten plagues that fall on Egypt, the mighty hand of God devastates and destroys and just dismisses, just wipes it away, all the false worship in Egypt. You recall, two and a half million are fleeing. They're getting out, they're running from and the, and the Red Sea is parted, and they cross on dry land. But behind them comes the elite chariot corps, strongest force in the known world at that point. Uh, and Pharaoh's coming to get them, bring them back, kill them if necessary. Better, than, better dead than gone. And um, they drown because the waters close up on that chariot corps that's pursuing them uh, through, the, through the Dead Sea. The mighty hand of God is what is seen multiple times in places through the Old Testament. Okay? And that's what we're supposed to let ourselves be humbled under that, in the expectation that, the text says, that he might exalt you at the proper time. All right. There's not a one-for-one -one relationship here. If I humble myself, then God is going to exalt me. It doesn't work like that. It's not brownie points. It's not, oh, I'm such a humble person over here. God can obviously do great things with me. That's not, he doesn't read it that way, okay? Because the operative word here is may. God may. God might exalt you at some future time. And, and obviously that's into the sphere of the natural. He did that with Joseph. Joseph comes out of a, a dry well and sold into slavery. He serves as a slave in the nation, for, in a family in Egypt, and then he's thrown into prison on a false charge, okay? And ultimately he's exalted to be the number two man under Pharaoh in Egypt, and he runs the nation. That's an exaltation in the natural. Some of us, by gift and by calling, will be exalted to serve. You know, you might be an entrepreneur that creates an, an astounding service organization that goes global or takes over something in the county or in the neighborhood or whatever it is. But your gift and calling will be clearly evidence that God has elevated you. And then we have some confirmation that we are all headed to some responsibilities in eternity future. We will be elevated to service with him. Now, remember, God never abandons his people. He never forsakes his own. The God of creation, the God of resurrection, okay, What's he been doing? What, do you do, you know, what does he do for the next 250 years after Peter? Okay, Peter sends a circular letter about 62. Okay, Peter sends out this circular letter that runs up through the middle of Asia Minor and it's copied. What happens for the next 250 years? Transformation. House by house, family by family, relationship by relationship. So 250 years later, the Roman Empire collapses. Because so many people have been transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. And no longer can they ignore the fact 
that the majority of the Roman Empire were believers and worshipers of Jesus, not Caesar. Now, the date of the Lord is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. If it took the Lord 250 years, that's just a good morning's work. So verse 7. Verse 7 said, again, verse 7 said, in the end of, I'm oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxiety upon him. All right. Uh, so this is worry, anxiety, stress, whatever it is, you know, that, that tightness in you, you know, the cold sweat, whatever, however you manifest that. Lack of sleep, no fingernails. Okay. Uh, Peter, by Holy Spirit, says you are to, we're supposed to cast our care, all that stress and anxiety and things, on him. Okay, the word literally means make a deposit. Um, so if you were the night auditor at a business, what you do at the end of the day is you collect all the cash, okay, and you count it, and you package it, and you collect all the checks, and you endorse all the checks, and you collect all the, the credit card slips, and you put those in order, you package that up, you put it in a zip bag with a lock on it, and you lock that, you get in the car, you drive to the night depository at the bank, and you go to the night depository, and there's, there's a code box. You flip the code box up, and you go, beep, 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 and you hear this internal clunk because the vault just unlocked, and you're able to pull that door open. So kids, you know what that's like when you take books back to the library. You have a big stack of books, and you pull the door down, and you kind of feed them down the throat of this. That's what you're doing with this night deposit bag. Only in this case, that bag goes into the vault, and it's secure. And Peter says, you make that kind of deposit of all your worry and anxiety and stress. Kenneth Weiss said, if you've got anxiety and stress, you're in direct contradiction to humility. Let me say it again. If you've got worry and stress and anxiety, can't sleep, okay, that is directly contradictory to humility. Because if you're depending on yourself to take care of all that, you have elevated yourself. And you've failed to put your trust in God himself. So I was rooting through some resources, and um, I did not recognize the name Maltby Babcock. <laughs> Didn't recognize the name. This is what he wrote. And you'll recognize this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Okay, this guy wrote this and got, got set to music. The point being, there are times when you just kind of go, this is so, I can't break through this, you know, this is so wrong, this is so frustrating. You know, and you, but you need to stop and say, God is the ruler. God's in charge, not me. Okay? In verse 8, after you've made this deposit, after you've put into the vault, if you will, at the feet of Jesus, all that sort of bothers you and stirs you, that verse 8 says, now you be so now you're capable. Now you're capable. You, you offloaded all the cares and stress and anxiety. Now you're capable of being sober. On the alert. Okay? It's really self-controlled. Okay? When you've got all those cares and frustrations and anxieties, you're not self-controlled. When those go away, you, you, you let those fly, okay? 
then you're on watch. And you're on watch for what? The diabolos, the adversary. The Greek word for adversary is diabolos, and it's our word for devil. Okay, and it describes him as one who, I'm going to give you a, this is English 101, the word traduce. You know that word? Oh, come on, people. Elizabethan English, you've got to do better. Okay, traduce. Okay, to speak badly or to tell lies about someone so as to damage their reputation. To misrepresent, defame, slander, speak ill, vilify, denigrate, slur, impugn, smear, besmirch, run down, blacken the name, cast aspersions on, and then present gutter vernacular, dis, bad mouth, and talk smack. Okay, that's what the adversary does. The adversary is trying to dismantle you with this stuff. He is trying to traduce you, but he does it by trying to, with fear. You know, this speaks about the roaring lion. It's a a great word that speaks about the, the, the cry, you know, the shuddering sound of an animal that is desperately hungry. He's raging with hunger. And the text says, so as to seeking who he's going to devour. All right, but we don't come to this unarmed. We come to this kind of situation with the armor of God. Ephesians 6 says we've got the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace at ground level, and on top of our head is the helmet of salvation. In between, we come equipped. Second, Jesus himself said, when you pray, you say, Heavenly Father, deliver us from the evil one, Diabolus. Who is it that delivers you? It ain't you. Okay? You resist. Your job is resist, to stand, to oppose, but he is the one, Father is the one who delivers you. Okay, and Revelation 12, 11 says, Satan is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. Jan and Ryan have been in Argentina once. Ben's been in Argentina 15 times. Okay, and I'm in the middle there somewhere. Ian and I are in the middle. We've been there year, over years. But, you know, that's a stretch of exposure to the Argentine church that is, is and was in revival. And when we were there, we went to Omar Olier's church. He's a pastor in Mar del Plata. And there was a song that they would sing. It was pounding, rollicking, powerful. And, but the, the, the sense of the lyrics were, Satan, the blood is against you. And they would just belt that out. Because they recognized that's our protection. <clears throat> Martin Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that word? Jesus. That truth. And but if it's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of the Lamb. You know, Jesus accomplished that. But you can say, Satan, I'm covered by the blood. And it stops him. Okay? That is also great hymn of the faith. All right, verse 9. After we are sober, we recognize the enemy is going to come and get up on our face. Okay, he's going to try and take us down with words and with attitudes. Some of, is, some of that's false. Some of that may be dead true, but he does it maliciously. He spreads the truth about you maliciously. You put on the armor and you, and you say, Lord, you are my defender. Go get him. Verse 9 says, but resist him, the adversary, firm in your faith, knowing that the same 
experiences of suffering are being accomplished by the brothers and sisters in the world around you. Okay, when we stand, we resist, we stand firm. And in the ancient world, what, you know, it was a military term. Uh, they, you, some of you may have seen this in, the, in movies, maybe you've read about it. It's called a shield wall. A shield wall is where you stand and the man on your left locks his shield in, in with yours and the man or the woman on your right, depending on which movie you're watching, <laughs> locks their shield in all across the line. The shields are locked together and that shield is tall, tall enough to kind of cover you from eye level down to your ankles. Okay? And then over your right shoulder and over every other right shoulder in that line comes a spear or a javelin or a lance. So the front, front side of this spear wall just bristles with sharp points. And it was used to defeat infantry and cavalry. Horses are not going to charge into that line, you know, the line of spears, line, line of shields. They don't do that. <clears throat> and when he says, you stand firm in your faith, that's a word that says, hold your order. It's a military term. You stand in line. You kind of go, oh, you're my mother calling me. You know, you don't back out of the line. You know, even if you're afraid, even if you're shaking, you don't back out of that line. You hold your order and you stay there and you stay locked in because your faith is placed in this strengthening, protecting, powerful God. In verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, it's almost a parenthesis. Okay, he's reminding them it's coming, it's coming, but it's not going to last forever. Okay, maybe it lasted 250 years. That's not forever. Okay? And it didn't last consecutively. There were 10 bloody persecutions of the Christians over that 250 years, but they would stop and there'd be a breather in between. He says, after you've suffered for a little, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect you, etc. So this word for call is summons. It's a royal summons. You don't ignore that. You don't kind of go, hey, I'll get around to it next week. It means you're going to show up. You can't not show up. In this case, it's a divine summons. So in chapter 1, verse 5, he calls us to holiness. In chapter 2, verse 9, he calls us to wonderful light. In chapter 2, 21 and 3, 9, he calls us to serve. And now in chapter 5, verse 10, we are called to the eternal glory in Christ. That same summoning God, that same God of all grace, will himself, it says, perfect you. So the word that's used for perfect is the same word in the New Testament that's used to mend nets. If you, got the tear, if you have a tear in yourself, a tear in your spirit, a hole, fish are getting out that hole in my net, okay? You're mended. You're put back together again. You're like a thousand piece, if you were a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle with 25 pieces missing randomly and you look like lace. The word of God says he's going to fulfill you. He's going to set things and fit them together. You will make, you know, life makes sense. <clears throat> Another way to say it is you become spiritually mature. You're, you become perfect and set. And then it says after he makes you perfect, he'll confirm you. He'll stand you on solid ground and strengthen you. Right now in San Francisco, there's a brand new, relatively brand new within the last five years, tower that has been built. And the architect designed it and the engineers finished it and people moved in and they've discovered that that tower is going and it's leaning and sinking because 
they decided they were going to only sink the piers 80 feet down into sand instead of 160 feet into bedrock. And now you've got millionaires that own all these upper stories and things like that, and you know, they own whole floors. And the building is starting to lean and sink. Remember the parable of Jesus? The wise man builds his house upon the rock, not upon the sand. Okay, here, he says, I'm going to give you a solid foundation, and I'm going to strengthen you in that place. And then he's saying, and then behind it comes this, what we call a doxology. Some of us grew up in liturgical churches where we sang a doxology every day, you know, every Sunday. You know, doxology was part of the, the rhythm of, of worship. Here, Peter tosses in one and he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what's a dominion? Large, furry animal. No. It, it means there's a domain. There's a, there's a region that's under the control of the king. And in that region, there's peace, there's rule, there's order, obedience, there's blessing. And in that dominion, if you will, that's where the king is. Okay, And we have some sense from the rest of scripture that it is not just for now. It is forever and forever and forever. So Peter's on that and says, you know, I want you to get this. The Lord who's in charge is going to be in charge forever and ever. Verse 12 Let's read verse 12. It says, um, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying this, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. So, we knew, and part of the introduction to First Peter was, we knew Peter wasn't writing this. He was preaching it, and it was being written out. And we knew it was Silas. Silas is the diminutive form of Silvanus. So again, who is Silas? Silas was one of the leading men in the Jerusalem church early, early on. And, and he, um, his name appears in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, where he and a man named Judas are handpicked out of all the brothers in the Jerusalem church to carry the message from the Jerusalem council. If you recall, a year ago we were studying Galatians, and the church had exploded and it had jumped over the boundaries of the Jewish community, and now they were in the Gentile community, and the Gentiles were receiving Holy Spirit, and they were believing in Jesus as Messiah, and, and the Jewish believers said, wait a minute, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law? to embrace Messiah, to be saved. Okay? Acts 15, they have a Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas come up from Antioch. Okay, and finally, James, the, the if you will, chief elder, first amongst the equals, says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you, the Gentiles, no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. Farewell. That's the message in short that was sent off with Silas and with Judas to the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas find their way back to Antioch and Silas is chosen to go with, Pete, with, with Paul on his second missionary journey. Barnabas said, oh no, we need to take John Mark again. Remember, John Mark bailed. John Mark, for whatever reason, righteous or unrighteous, didn't go on that all the way on that first missionary journey. Barnabas picks up John Mark, and they go to Crete. Paul takes Silas, and on the way they pick up Timothy, and they 
go up that same, more or less the same road, right up the center of Asia Minor. And they get there, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to minister here. He was forbidden to preach the gospel in that region. And so Paul is like, what is going on? I'm here, and, and he hasn't, he's in Troas, and there's a night, and there's a dream that comes to him of the Macedonian man. He says, come over to us. He collects Silas and Timothy and whoever else was traveling. They get aboard a boat. They go over the Sea of Marmara, I think it is. And they land at the port and they go up the road to Philippi. In Philippi, they are ministering to, the, to Lydia, the woman who, in her house, the woman who sold purple dye. She's a merchant. She's a, a relatively wealthy lady. And the house church and the God-fearers came to meet at her house. And there was a woman in the marketplace who was possessed of a demonic spirit by some snake spirit. And she was able to prophesy accurately in a demonic voice. And, Peter, and finally, Paul had enough of it. And he, he stopped. He says, you know, you know, this demonic spirit identified them as servants of the Most High God. And Paul says, that's it. You're done. Casts out the demon. Creates a riot. They're dragged in front of the magistrates. And they are beaten with rods. Okay. That night, they're, they're set in the prison underground in, in the dungeon, and they're bleeding and they're bruised. Their, their feet, Silas is on the right and Paul is on the left, or vice versa, but they have to sit on their bleeding, bruised parts that were thrashed by those rods. And there's an earthquake, and the whole house shakes. Part of it crumbles. The jailer comes in. He's ready to fall on the sword. Remember? And Silas and Paul say, wait, stop, we're all here. Nobody's escaped. So Silas is someone who was not only respected, but who traveled in ministry with Paul. And now here he is, the copyist, the amanuensis, the secretary, who got it all down as, as Peter was preaching. Okay? And with, with Peter, he says, through Silvanus, stand in this grace of God. This is the real deal. And then verse 13 talks about Babylon. You know, she who is in Babylon, all right, there's, there's, there's some confusion here. Lots of people write lots of stuff. Babylon, we know, was in Mesopotamia. But at that season where, where Peter's writing, it's a ruin. It was destroyed. It's just a, a rubble, a pile of rubble. Now, there may have been a church in Babylon, but we think that's probably not she who is in Babylon. You know, it's, that's not the location. Then there was a bunch of Babylonians who actually migrated into Egypt outside of Cairo, and they called it Babylon, but that was a major military training camp. Possibility that there might have been a church there, but it's more likely that, the, that this really speaks of Rome because both the Jews and the Christians viewed Rome as Babylon because of sort of unchecked godlessness, luxury, and lust. That's what marked Babylon in the ancient world. That's what marked Rome. And then the she here, you know, she could be Peter's wife. We, you know, we don't have any history. We don't have historical documents. We don't have pictures. But Peter's wife is said to have traveled with him in his travels. And, and church tradition has her being executed in the name, because she would not recant the name of Jesus, executed in front of Peter before he's crucified. So it is possible she is in Rome, and you know she who is in Rome could be 
Peter's wife. Or it could be the sister church. It could be the gathering of believers who are called out in the same way that all these other house churches were that spread up through the middle of Asia Minor. When you see Peter, you ask him, what did you mean? What? Who were you talking about? Oh, you're the one. Oh, okay. Got it. And then he refers to this, and so does my son Mark. Okay, Mark could indeed have been the son of Peter. We don't know. Or it could be the man who, who we recognize, if you will, as the author of the gospel of Mark. Who we think is John Mark, actually. John Mark, the one who bailed on Paul, shows up where Peter is and begins to record everything that Peter talked about in terms of his exposure to the teaching of Jesus in, in, in not necessarily the best order sometimes, but it's all there. And it really probably could be called the Gospel of Peter as opposed to the Gospel of Mark. But Mark is recognized as the one who wrote it. When you see Mark, ask him. All right? And then he closes with this phrase, greet one another with a kiss of love. Okay, that's not, hey, brother, hey, sister. This is agape. This is not phileo. This is not eros. This is not any of the other love forms. This is the very love of God the Father that you've experienced and the person that you're kissing has experienced. Okay, that was part of the form of church wherever house churches gathered for centuries. It got a little blurred and a little bent, okay? Because when church becomes an institution, you don't have purity all the time, and you've got, then you've got the old guys who go, oh, I'm going to go kiss her, okay? <laughs> or, or vice versa, you know? Or vice versa. There's problems that happen with the kiss. Nevertheless, if you go to a liturgical high church today, you know, there's this greet one another with a kiss, and then they describe it as the peace beyond you all, okay? The truth being, that kiss is a great leveler because the very poorest of the poor sitting in a house church kisses the most wealthy and respected and vice versa, saying it's because of the love of God that we're together sitting in this room. Now, family, this whole First uh, Peter Circular letter has, has clearly the themes of suffering, clearly the themes of, subord, of submission, subordination to, submitting yourself as husbands and then to wives and, and to elders, etc. But what is, there's, a, there's a sweet treasure hunt in here. I'm not going to point out those passages for you. But the thing that, that you can go find when you go back through it is five times through this book, Peter says the word hope. You're going you're to suffer, but there's hope. You're, you know, maybe you're in a tough marriage, but there's hope. Okay? You submit yourself. There's hope. All right? So, brothers and sisters, would you please stand up and greet one another with a holy kiss and, and speak peace to each other in Jesus' name. Oh, yeah. Sicilians? Yeah. Not your family, right? No. No. I think I'm going to be
I did everything right, but hit the button. I never recorded it. Yeah, you did. No, I forgot to do it. 39 minutes and 58 seconds. Really? Yeah.